0: God's Word reads in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the Word of the Lord. we we'll are going to some other texts uh, here in just a few moments, um, but that is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, is really looking at those words. You shall not commit adultery. And right now, I can imagine that if you were unaware of where we are in this text or what was going to be taking place here, maybe you're a guest or a visitor, uh, welcome. Again, we're glad that you're here, Uh, but we're going to definitely dive into some of these issues that can be sensitive, and I know that there are many things that can surround um, these sorts of topics when you're talking about marriage and when you're talking about intimacy, and it's my job, my responsibility, my desire to be faithful to the text, Faithful to God, first and foremost, and faithful in the preaching of his word. It's not to be simply to make light or to be coarse uh, with something that the Lord takes very seriously, and yet there is much joy to be found in this passage. Um, Also, personally, uh, I've been trying to limit myself uh, to what is going to be shared here today because beginning in next year, in January, as of right now, our preaching plan is to begin uh, preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians and then eventually 2 Corinthians. It's going to dive much deeper into these topics. And so today will not be a 35,000-foot view of uh, trusting the Lord, that we preach from a perspective of not a sprint but a marathon. Our goal is to preach the whole council of Scripture, and so we're going to come to all of these things once again in just a small amount of time, really, as we kick off 1 Corinthians in the beginning of the year. All right? So as we've been working through this series, we've been working through an outline that is up on the screens above you or beside of you, um, that this outline works through the text and can essentially be used in any text that you come in contact with the scripture, is that it's going to ask the questions of Revelation, what is this saying about God, second to that, how is this truth going to confront us personally and ultimately our hearts and our actions and attitudes? From there, we're going to move to the person and work of Jesus. How does Jesus intersect? How does the gospel intersect at this very command or this very word of God? And then follow that up by some application. And again, I'm trying to limit myself. This has been known to be a soapbox of mine, something I've talked about um, in a lot of years of ministry, and yet this morning only have a certain amount of time to kind of discuss these things. So uh, as always, if you have further questions, if you need more counseling or any of those things, then please contact me or one of your pastors. We would love to sit down and talk to you more about these issues. All right? All right. Hold on. Let's go. Um, Revelation. What does it say about God? What does it say about God when he tells us that we, commands us, you shall not commit adultery? The first thing that we need to understand about God is this, is that God has given us many great gifts And one of those is the gift of marriage. Marriage is a gift from God. In Genesis chapter 2, God declares that it is not good for man to be alone. The calling to singleness is actually a calling to very few people. God wants us to be married, generally speaking. He wants his people to be married. And God, in that moment, after creating Adam, declares that it is not good for this human being, this man, to not be alone. And so from Adam, he made Eve a helper for him. As image bearers of God, uh, we see that there is both male and female, that there are two genders. And though they are equal in dignity and value and worth... They are created in the likeness of God. They are even created in the likeness of each other, and yet they are very different from each other. We see established in Genesis and reminded of, even in the Ten Commandments, that there is no other reason of why a man or woman should leave their parents unless it is to be married. It is for this reason a man leaves his father and his mother and he clings to the relationship with his wife. This is a covenant relationship. This goes much deeper than just making a, a, a promise or a pinky swear. This is a covenant relationship. It is about what you can give to it, not what you can necessarily get from it. We're to hold fast in this gift, this gift of marriage. Outside of the relationship with God that you and I are called to have, um, the marriage covenant is the most important relationship that you can be engaged in. In all of God's creation, other than being in relationship with him, the relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is the most significant and sanctifying relationship on the planet. The second thing that this passage reveals about God is that sex as well is a gift from God to the marriage covenant. Continuing in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, speaking of the covenant of marriage, God commands the husband and the wife to become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see this, that a good and holy and perfect God created sex. He created intercourse. He created this. Uh, God gave marriage and only marriage this particular gift for them to enjoy. If you can imagine just for a moment, but not too far, two naked people in the garden, and God was not freaked out by this. God created them to be sexually attracted to each other. An alarm did not go off in heaven when Adam and Eve snuck behind a tree and got to do what married people do. It wasn't sounding a warning or any of these sorts of things in the throne room of God. God did not blush. He was not turned off or on by what was taking place. It was simply an act of worship actually to God within this covenant means of marriage. It was as significant and as beautiful as what is taking place here on the Lord's Day. It was celebrated by him. Because his creation was doing what they were created to do. You know, I love how the Bible describes intimacy, especially early on inside of the Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew Eve And she conceived a child. As we've talked about here at Mission before, isn't it interesting that God says that intimacy, intercourse, sexual relationship inside the marriage that he called it knowing each other. It wasn't coarse. It wasn't a joke. But it was this beautiful word that we see described here. That Adam knew Eve and Eve knew Adam like no one had ever known them before. That is the beauty inside of marriage is that you and I are to know one and to be known by one. This is God's covenant plan, his covenant uh, role and responsibility inside of marriage. We see inside this gift of sex that the scripture describes it as this connection between man and woman physically, emotionally, spiritually, that they become bone of bone and flesh of flesh. The two become one. This is the actual physical image that is supposed to be seen inside of the marriage bedroom. They are connected on every level. They know each other. What a beautiful gift that we see from God. See, sex and sexual desire is part of God's creation. In Genesis, God commands Adam and Eve, and this is many people's favorite verse, to be fruitful and multiply. This was all part of procreation, and yet is also entirely part of enjoyment and recreation. It is to be for his glory, It is to be a servant, an act of service to the person that you are married to, and it is supposed to be for a lot of fun. There's actually an entire book dedicated to a very explicit viewpoint of looking into the marriage uh, bedroom of a man and a woman. It was actually called The Song of Solomon, and I never knew that as a child. I grew up singing this song, that his banner over me is love. Right? Everybody know that song from church? If you went to church a long time ago, you may have known that song. It's really awkward to sing that now in church, because I used to think that that was about me and my relationship with God until I read the Bible. And it was about a faithful marriage uh, between a man and a woman, and it is extremely explicit. Actually, in Jewish culture, young boys, Jewish boys, were actually not allowed to read the Song of Solomon because it was believed to be that it would instill within them or ignite a passion within them that they were not ready to handle yet. Even this morning, if I knew Hebrew, and I have to to base that off of uh, the language experts, of which I am not of the Bible, but the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, And to make it more palatable for especially English readers, they have actually not translated it as explicit as it was originally written. We would all be blushing in here if we read the Song of Solomon um, in its original form. So God is not opposed to marriage. He created it. God is not opposed to a sexual relationship within inside of that marriage. It's actually commanded for you and I to participate in that within our marriage. It is highly encouraged. It is a place of joy and excitement and enjoyment within that marriage. God encourages people within the marriage covenant To have sex, to enjoy that, and to know each other within their marriage. Again, it should be based on consent and the service of other. Every time that a person who is in Christ participates in their marriage in sexual activity, it is to be a covenant renewal ceremony. You're to get married one time. As we saw yesterday, many uh, people that we were close to, uh, right here in this moment, they exchanged vows with each other. Well, that's not something that you do every day or even weekly. But the picture of intimacy within marriage is that it is to be a reminder of that covenant, of those vows. We are bone of bone, flesh of flesh. We are naked as Adam and Eve were, and we were not ashamed we know each other we know each other this is so serious both marriage and sexual intimacy that God wants to protect both of those gifts God is the creator of marriage he takes it seriously and so in order for you and I to be protected and for those around us to be protected From a variety of different things, then God establishes boundaries. And in those boundaries, again, this great gift is only to be found within a covenant marriage. So, we see that in this, that God commands it here in the Old Testament, here in other places, that you shall not commit adultery. Later on, inside of the Old Testament, we will see time and time again that people begin to commit adultery with one another. And in so that God even established a government laws that if they were participating in these sorts of activities outside of their marriage at any point, whether pre-marriage or during marriage, that it was actually punishable by death. There are also other cases where you would see that That people engaged in these sorts of activity, that if you were engaging in premarital sexual activity, that you were actually commanded by the scripture, uh, then to go and to marry that person. You actually had to pay their daddy some money, and then you had to marry them. And then God's law also placed upon you was that you had to never, ever, ever leave them. You could not divorce them no matter what. God takes this idea of protecting the sanctity of marriage and the marriage bedroom, again, extremely serious. Why? Is he a killjoy? Absolutely not. He created these moments of joy. However, he wants to, again, protect his image and his image bearer, his gifts by placing, again, these boundaries of only them taking place within the boundaries of marriage. In the God-honoring marriage, in the marriage bedroom, he places the male and female, symbolically, again, back into the garden. Do not commit adultery. This is what he tells us in order to protect us. Well, what is adultery? Well, simply put, adultery is any sort of sexual activity of mind, body, spirit, spirit, outside of the covenant of marriage. So this includes fornication, which is activity pre-marriage, or even what we commonly know in our vernacular, uh, adultery, sleeping around, participating in sexual activity outside of the person that you are married to. See, God desires for us, because he knows what is best for us, that we would be sexually pure, emotionally, mentally, and physically Again, he takes this very seriously. As mentioned, capital punishment. As mentioned, uh, divorce should be very rare amongst specifically those of us who are in Christ. That There are only very uh, narrow allowances for divorce to take place. And uh, I would hold personally, because I think that the scripture would point to these, that the areas of abandonment... Adultery, and I believe that abuse is also included in that. Deuteronomy, speaking of the importance of removing these people from our midst and from from the congregation, is to remove the evil that is among us. Because the temptation is, is that even for those of us who are God's people, is that there could be wolves in sheep's clothing and disobedient people that would come and prey on people, other image bearers of God, whom God wants to protect. And these people will use their mouths and their bodies to convince, manipulate other males or females to engage in these sorts of activities. And this does not make God happy. See, these gifts are far more than just physical. They're spiritual. They're emotional. They're deeply intertwined. As the great pastor and uh, preacher and teacher and author Tim Keller says, we must be unwilling to do anything with our body that we are unwilling to do with our entire lives. That is why we have covenant. We have a covenant promise. I will not leave. I will not forsake. I will not divorce unless it's given by allowance inside of the scripture. That is the seriousness of how God takes these two great and precious gifts. So we see here that this passage of scripture reveals much about God that God is for us, that God has given us this gift of marriage, that God is within that marriage, has given us the gift of sexual intimacy, and yet simultaneously that God is willing to go to the fullest extent to protect both of those precious gifts. Brothers and sisters, you must get into your heart and mind, not all sin is the same. The consequences of that sin, the emotional strife of that sin, all sin is not created equal. and Mainly that's seen in the consequences of that sin and playing out in our very lives. So once we have seen what God has revealed about himself in this passage, this passage also confronts you and I head on. We live in a culture, in a time and place, where the marriage gift has been greatly devalued and where sex and intimacy and all those things, instead of them being good gifts from God, have become God themselves. The Bible tells us, do not commit adultery. And when it tells us that, it shoots an arrow into the depraved hearts of everyone who is here today. Friends, we we have a very serious problem on our hands. Take a moment with me through a quick journey and see how far that we have come from God's initial design and purposes in these things. We live in such a time and place that people will tell you that all love is love until you read the Bible and you quickly realize that not all love is love we see that within our time and 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 within our space that sexual abuse is according to the CDC a very serious problem that 1 in 4 girls and 1 in 13 boys have experienced some sort of sexual abuse that in our world and time that sex trafficking between 20 to 40 million people and modern slavery today that's the most people in slavery than there has ever been in the history of humanity. And most of those are involved in sex slavery. Out of the billions and billions and billions of dollars that is made in the, the, the sex trafficking or the, the trafficking of human lives in modern times, 99 billion of that is made from commercial sexual exploitation. According to the CDC, one in 5 women have experienced completed or excuse me, experienced completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. We live in a system of hookup culture, of one-night stands, of swiping left and right. I mean, for us who grew up without these things, it was really tough to get a date. Not anymore. Dating has become as equivalent as test-driving vehicles where we try out individuals to see if we're a good match. People living together and playing marriage, but they're not married. This is manipulation. It's manipulation of the heart. It's manipulation of the mind. And even not according to the scripture, but to science and research itself, that cohabitation, which means to live together, that those people who cohabitate before they actually get married, guess what they're more prone to do? To get divorced. And once you've gotten a divorce, you're more prone to get your second divorce. And once you've got your second divorce, you're more prone to get your third divorce. See, we live in a, uh, uh, under the understanding of our Creator that these are great and good gifts. And yet we live in a, cons- uh, in a consumer-driven culture instead of a covenant-driven culture. See, people who live together, they, they have to keep trying to pretend and win the person. Well, if I will do this, then he will finally put a ring on it because he likes it. If I will just do this, then she will finally commit to me. One day you love, the next day you don't. One day you love, the next day you don't. One day you love, the next day you don't until eventually the bomb goes off, leaving um, those lives destroyed, or at least one life destroyed, while you continue on in your practices. And these are image bearers of God. I didn't say that they were followers of Jesus. But that's why God has put these boundaries, is to protect marriage, to protect the marriage bedroom. Divorce rates 50%, and of those 50% of marriages, they're due to adultery. Most of the arguments and divorces in our, probably in this room, at least the argument side of things, is because of two major reasons. One, it's because you, you get really frustrated with each other about how you spend money or don't spend money, or the sexual tension, um, either promiscuity or the lack thereof of intimacy inside of your marriage. These are leading causes as well within that. See, we live in a culture that's not about covenant. It's not about God. We live in a a culture where our sexual preference has become our identity. Have you noticed that? That the the sexual choices that you and I make, that's who we are. And that's why it can be so hard to communicate and not seem like we're completely all out against our friends and family members who struggle with another sexual sin called homosexuality. Our LGBTQ friends who are in, immersed in those sins, they see it as a major problem in division because, why? It is their identity. And when you don't accept that about them, then you're saying you do not accept them. That doesn't happen in very many other sins, right? I don't see anybody putting on their Twitter account or Facebook or Instagram, um, Eric Baker, uh, liar, thief, you know, I like Twinkies too much. I mean, we, we don't put those things as our identity. But when sex has become God, we do. Because even if we won't say those things, the, the amount that we're getting or the, the number of people that we have conquered or had experiences with, again, it has a temptation to feed into our very identity. This is unbecoming of what God would have for us. We see this growing practice and support, as mentioned, of homosexuality and prostitution and just a whole plethora of other sexual deviants. We've come so far from what God would want to have for us. We've come so far, it's become distorted. It is a a mere um, fantasy, distortion, devalued picture of the initial picture that we saw inside of the book of Genesis, and that we see reiterated over and over in Scripture, that within one man and one woman, that there should be this beautiful thing called marriage. That it, it isn't this thing where, you know, you find about the guy, the, the new guy that's getting married. I wonder what kind of conversations that people have had with Adam this week when he tells people, hey, I'm going to get married. And, and, and other guys around the office or in the factory, wherever you may work, they begin to downplay and downgrade marriage. Man, you don't need that old woman. My old lady. My old lady, she's a ball and chain. She won't let me do nothing. My old lady. Right? heard those things before? Have you said those things before? Oh, like marriage. humbug! <laughs> I mean, it just makes it sound like it's the most terrible thing you can do. It's like get a surgery you don't need or get married. I'll take the surgery, right? That's the picture of marriage. It's this begrudging Scrooge McDuck just hating life. Sorry for the DuckTales reference. Just this terrible thing That you would hate to participate in. Why do you want to go do that for? Right? It's a terrible... No. Especially for those of us who are in Christ. We should be encouraging people. No, fellas. Find a godly one. And get married. Find a godly one and get married. Quit being passive. Reject the passivity of your heart that was given to you from Adam. Adam. Notice a godly woman, a woman who is far better than you and pursue her as Christ did the church. This is the calling. We should be like, no, brother, like rejoice. We celebrate. We have these parties when we see this union of man and woman coveting together. We are going to honor God. We're going to pursue Jesus with all of our heart. We're going to look to our left and to our right. And when we see the person of an opposite sex running shoulder to shoulder with us toward the same Jesus, then those make good candidates. Those make good candidates. If she's way behind you, you ain't got no business. And ladies, if you're way above him, you ain't got no business. Don't turn around, because you will never mold him, shape him. I thought I could change him. No. You are not Jesus. You're not Jesus. And yet, again, because of these things that I've mentioned, Friends, this is not just a problem in our culture, it is a problem in the church. In 19 years of pastoring, most of my pastoral care with singles and married couples has all around, revolved around sexual temptation, sexual immorality in all forms. And those are just the people that got so convicted by it or got caught. We're in a mess. Our culture isn't a mess, and many within the church are in an absolute mess when it comes to marriage and sexual relationships. How do we meet Jesus? How does the incarnation of Jesus intersect with these things? Well, I do have a passage of scripture for us to go to, if you'll go there, Eric, for me. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk about this Old Testament passage in the Sermon on the Mount, just like he did murder last week. In Matthew chapter 5, it says this, you can read along with me in verses 27 through 30. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. See, by the time that Jesus comes from his throne room in heaven to this earth, and begins to live out what God has called him to do, by that time, many of the Pharisees, many of the religious people, have already convinced within their minds that as long as there's not intercourse, as long as I'm just looking but not touching, then I've checked the box of fulfilling this command. You have to moment. Really, Jesus? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, Jesus, do you notice what women wear nowadays? Do you know, Jesus, what's on the cover of magazines? Do you know that back in the 80s they called them pantyhose, but now they call them leggings? And they used to go under a skirt, but there's no more skirt. You know, Jesus... See, I mean, you're, we're sitting here thinking, and we're going, man, I, I've, maybe you've not hired a prostitute. Maybe you've not been to a script club. Maybe you were a virgin until your wedding night. Maybe you've never stepped out on your spouse. And yet, when Jesus speaks about this very commandment, again, the water drop hitting the page, it doesn't just stay, but it spreads, it covers something much deeper. But I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery in their heart. See, Jesus is going to confront not merely one's actions, not merely with what you do with your hands, but... Rather, and ultimately, the true root of the problem. And what is that? It is the human heart. See, lust is the intense sexual desire, a passion, a mastering desire, a craving. To have a yearning desire to hunger and have a strong exce- or excessive craving. Though today we are primarily dealing with, with sexual lust, I want everyone to, to understand that, that lust over anything, not just sex, is also applied inside of this term. Within our culture, with Instagram models and all of the images that are out there, I mean, we've even created slang terms such as a, a, you, know, a thirst trap. something that is to allure you. Have you not noticed that our depraved culture is so evil and wicked that you and I can be looking up, you know, Easter bunnies? butterflies and yet from the commercials we continue to being bombarded with all of these sorts of images that are alluring us they are sirens on the side of a cliff yelling out to the sailors in their attractiveness to come and yet when those sailors drive their boats they quickly run upon the rocks and they perish We live in a time and space where, where modesty, and that is the, the particular, it's not just, uh, it, it can refer obviously to men, but where the idea of, of being modest and covering one's body has become a concept of the past. We're bombarded with images of sexuality from the time that we wake up until the time that we sleep. If sex sells, then you and I are buying it. I told my college students this morning, as a white suburban boy who used to love some gangster rap, that as I've become a dad, and specifically a daughter, I have removed all of those sorts of things from my life, because I can't even now, as I used to not paying attention to the words, as now as a dad, I do pay attention to the words, and I can't repeat them anymore. Again... Movies, music, social media is saturated with these things. I mean, the selfie culture alone is, is, is all combative to this, man, you need to, my identity is in the way that I look. My identity is in the likes. It's in the loves. It's in the, the filters that I'm going to put over my face so that I can totally look like somebody until you meet them in real life. And you're like, whoa, like you do not match your profile pic. You've been catfishing me. This is the temptation that people are all into because you're ultimately trying to allure someone from your present, from your past, or from your future to to DM you. That means direct message you. All right? We we see this inside of our culture as we're being just saturated with these images that 30% right now of everyone who's on the internet is looking at pornography. Pornography makes more money than every year than every major sports league combined. Dr. William Struthers, this is not a Christian, who is a PhD in biopsychology from the University of Illinois of Chicago. So even non-Christians are beginning to understand the depths of pornography. Men who use porn become controlling, highly introverted, depressed, dissociative, Distractable, uh, narcissistic, curious, and have high anxiety and low self-esteem. And I've met him. I've met her. Another non-Christian, Naomi Wolf, writes in her article, The Porn Myth, after all, pornography works the most basic of ways on the brain. It's Pavlovian. An orgasm is one of the biggest reinforces imaginable. If you associate orgasm with your wife, a kiss, a scent, a body, that is what, over time, will turn you on. If you open your focus to an endless stream of ever more transgressive images of cybersex slaves, that is what it will take to turn you on. Sexual images do not free us in sex. It dilutes it. It creates somebody and something that is not real. It is a fantasy world that you and I are attracted to. Whenever you and I participate in these sorts of activities, a piece of us dies. Just like last week when we were talking about the idea of murder and specifically those of serial killers, that... After the first one, they've got to, it's got to become more extreme, more extreme and more extreme and more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. Why? Because a piece of you dies in the participation of those acts. It's not just the person that you've killed, but it's also your own heart. Likewise, every time you and I look at an image, and, and, and fellas, let me speak to you just for a moment. She doesn't have to be naked. Can we get over it in our own hearts? Well, as long as she's not naked— then it's okay for me to look at it. I.e., you know, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition or Victoria's Secret Magazines. Those things are not made for women to check out bikinis. You do know that, right? They're fully clothed. No. Every time we do. It numbs us to the reality. The only standard of beauty in your life, gentlemen, that you should have and that I should have is the married woman that you're married, or the the woman that you're married to? She is your standard of beauty, and it's tough. Again, modesty culture is gone by the wayside, um, and we live in an overtly sexualized culture where we're constantly being bombarded by the standard of beauty as something that actually a physical woman cannot achieve. Sexual sin leads to you and I living a double life. It often leads us to be lying, emotional, and emotional pain and distress. We'll have to live, again, this life over here, but then we have this secret kind of seething life over here. There are things that we won't allow people to ask us about. um, we'll, We'll create all sorts of things because here's what we know. When a marriage breaks down, And when there are problems with intimacy within that marriage and the surrounding culture around it, there is much collateral damage. Just ask any kid who loves both of his parents and there's been infidelity in that marriage. It not only affects those kids, but it affects the parents of both of those sets of kids. If they're within a church family, it affects them. And I, as one of your pastors and these other men, specifically your pastors who have spent and are, can stand before you here this week as I was preparing, name after name after name, and I come not with an axe to grind against those people. I come with much pain and sorrow over friends and family members who have experienced these sorts of things within their marriage and in their lives, to the point where it led to divorce or even death. We have a serious problem. Jesus would say to us in that passage, what? It's better for you to lose your members. It's better to cut off a hand. Now, here's the deal. Let's be very clear. Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole. If you're from Kentucky, that's hyperbole, all right? He's speaking in hyperbole here. He's drawing out this experience. After struggling with reading this passage, one of the early church fathers, Origen, uh, literally read that passage and he emasculated himself. Only to later realize that he still lusted in his mind. That is what Jesus is getting at here. In 2010, I actually knew of a pastor in Kentucky who was living this double life, engaged in sexual activity through pornography and all these sorts of things, that literally um, one night his family could not find him and they went to the church and he had cut off his own hands, his own feet, plucked out his own eyes and emasculated himself and died in Kentucky. That is not what Jesus is speaking about here. Because here's the thing, you and I can go to hell with no hands, no feet, And no eyes. What is Jesus getting at? Jesus is addressing the human heart. He's saying, what do we have to do? If we're going to fight against this, then that we've got to war against this by doing what? By cutting off the things that are leading us astray, that are leading us to be uh, against marriage in some way or, or, or committing adultery in some sort of way, to be practicing of sexual sin. Jesus is saying that if there's something that you're holding of great value, and you're holding that great value above intimacy in the marriage or in marriage itself, and ultimately that you're holding it in your hand and it is of greater value than you view God, then you need to remove that from your life, from my life. So maybe that means going back to a flip phone or Nokia. Snake is great. Maybe it's not having a computer. I know that sounds really extreme, right? Not to Jesus. Not to Jesus. If you're married, your wife, your husband should have every password known to man that you have. They should have access and full access to ask you every question imaginable about what you are into. There are no secrets in that marriage. Again, they're naked and not ashamed. They know each other. They know each other in every way. There are no secrets in the marriage. You share all of your money, people. It's not your money and my money. And you share everything and every intimate detail with the person that you're married to. Key, married to. If you're not married to them, they have no business knowing those things. And it ultimately probably leads to the defrauding of the other person. Jesus is going after the heart. He's saying, man, it's, it's probably best that you not have a, an iPhone then. It's probably best that you don't have a computer. You probably need to cut the cord on cable anyway because, whew, spectrum's crazy. That you need to remove yourself. I mean, it goes as far as this. Man, if you can't go to the gym without leading you down a dark path, then get some weights on a video at the house. Again, Is this going to, are you going to get to heaven because you do these things? Absolutely not. Can't work your way to heaven. You cannot. But our goal is, our desire is, is that we want to do what? We want to honor our marriage. We want to honor the gift of intimacy that he has given because ultimately we want to honor God. And he has called us, in case we've forgotten this, modern American nominal Christians, that he has called you to pick up your cross and to die daily. That all things are worth losing in comparison to knowing Jesus. That's for you and that's for me. What is the application here? I don't have time to go into all these like I was going to, so I'm going to give you three very quickly and then a fourth one that I'll dive in to wrap us up. Application number one, we must recapture God's purpose for marriage. We must recapture God's purpose for marriage. My concern is, is that many marriages are simply now a business transaction because you believe it's going to help your finances, and anybody that's been married for any period of time knows that's not true. <laughs> but, it's what you should culturally do. It's best for the kids that we just go through the motions, at least to their eighteen. What a sad depiction of God's gift to you called marriage. Simultaneously, within that, you got to stop being roommates. You should be the best of friends. And to be the best of friends, that takes work. See, in a a non committed, non covenant relationship, um, it's flippant. You can go at any time. But in a covenant marriage under God and in Christ, then it should be a home where you will not go, no matter what. Don't be roommates, be married. Number two, enjoy sex within marriage. Now, here, I do not believe that anybody within even a marriage should be a sexual slave to the other person. However, as we will see next year, there should be a joyful, consistent engagement In these activities, as long as it is consensual and as long as abuse is not taking place, and if the abuse has taken place in one of those parties' lives, then again, there needs to be counseling, there needs to be help. But the goal should be that we want to honor God and serve our spouse by practicing this gift consistently. Consistently. Not daily, gentlemen but consistently, ladies. All right? Because again, problems in marriage revolving around this aren't just someone stepping out on it. It's that we're not doing it. Isn't that the first problem that you know about a lot of times when people are having marital problems is they start, stop being intimate with each other? And so it can be really confusing to the person as well who's wanting to be faithful in their marriage, and yet the covenant renewal through intimacy, the becoming of one flesh, is not taking place. Now, that does not give that permission, that person permission then to go step out or to look at things and find fulfillment elsewhere. But it, it, it likewise does cause issues of them questioning their marriage if it's not taking place. Three, flee all sexual immorality. Flee all sexual immorality. Flee all sexual immorality. Paul's going to talk about this in Corinthians. He's going to talk about it in 1 Thessalonians when he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That word sexual immorality there is the word pornonia. It is literally where we get the word porn, but it's not just talking about the viewing of someone else. It encompasses all sexual immorality. You and I, brothers and sisters, are called to purity for life, not just purity until you get married. And in that, we should not be asking the, the teenage youth group question, how far can we go, pastor, youth pastor? How far can we go? That is not the question. The question is, is how holy can we be? If we do fight, not fight lust, if we do not fight these things, these passions, then, then when we die, if we die apart from Christ then we will reap our reward, and it will not be good. The gospel calls us to fight and win. No. The gospel calls us, don't fight, and we'll die. We're constantly told to put these sins to death. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war on your souls. So number one, an application, to capture God's purpose of marriage. Number two, enjoy sex within marriage. Three, flee all sexual immorality. Um, and four, the last one, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. In John chapter 8, and I leave with a word literally from the Lord. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, it says this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do we say? This they said to test him beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus, Jesus, our Jesus. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But catch this, go and sin no more. In the Exodus chapter 20, before he tells them how to live their lives, he reminds them, I am the Lord your God, the one who has saved you. Now live this way. I would contend to you that every person in this room, probably above a certain age, is a sexual sinner in some way, or has been. Maybe you're currently there. We may appear to be hopeless here this morning, and yet we have great hope. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus looks at those people standing around this lady and says, if you have not committed these sins, then kill her. Isn't it interesting that also that the, they're not really wanting to follow the law because where's the man? They're oppressing a woman, a group of men, except for one man. She was caught in the act. And the only one who can pick up a stone and kill this woman doesn't either Jesus died for the adulterous person too but he commands you and I to not do that anymore and in him brothers and sisters it is possible not to mitigate it but to put it to death let us be about that. Let us enjoy the gift of marriage. Let us enjoy the gift of intimacy in marriage. And let's make war against a culture that is going in the complete and opposite direction. Let's pray together.